Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Stephanie Skanderis. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Justice delayed after seven years of pushing for answers and accountability. Today, Suleiman Fakiri's family heard a jury deem the 30-year-old's death a homicide. His brother tells us what he believes must come next. In the name of the son, it was a British father who first raised concerns about accused poison seller Kenneth Law after his child's suicide. He tells us about his mixed emotions over the murder charges that have now been laid against Mr. Law. Grave concerns. A new investigative report is drawing attention to the stories of migrants who have died trying to get into Europe, people who were buried but never identified. Out of sight, but not out of mind, opposition leader Alexei Navalny has disappeared within Russia's prison system just after Vladimir Putin announced he's running for re-election. Mr. Navalny's chief of staff tells us that's no coincidence. To air is human, and in this case, pretty divine too. Festivus, for those who celebrate the irate, is upon us, and our guest shares some of this year's best gripes. And fruit fly problem. After months of accusations, an astronaut who misplaced a fresh tomato while aboard the International Space Station has been vindicated by the discovery of its shriveled remains, giving those who were convinced he'd eaten it something to chew on. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that doesn't shy away from strange tomatoing rituals. It's been almost exactly seven years since Suleiman Fakiri died. And today, at long last, a jury has ruled his death a homicide. Mr. Fakiri was killed inside an Ontario jail cell in December 2016. He was 30 years old and had been diagnosed with schizophrenia in his teens. He was repeatedly struck by guards, pepper sprayed, covered with a spit hood, and left shackled face down on the floor of a segregation cell at the Central East Correctional Centre in Lindsay, Ontario. In the wake of his death, two correctional services managers were fired and another 13 staff members were suspended. But Mr. Fakiri's family was told over and over that there was not enough evidence to declare a homicide. Now, that's all changed. Today's verdict comes out of an Ontario coroner's inquest. And for Mr. Fakiri's family, it comes after a long wait. Yusuf Fakiri is Suleiman Fakiri's brother. We reached him in Toronto. Yusuf, when when we last spoke to you, it was back in May, and at that time you were talking about accountability and unanswered questions and transparency. Do you feel like those questions have been answered now? I believe the questions in terms of the fact of what happened to Suleiman Fakiri has been answered. In terms of accountability, uh, no, that still has not happened. The guards, uh, we now know today that this was a homicide. 
but that the, the people that are responsible for my brother's death have not been held accountable. But this is an important and a powerful start. His death has, has been ruled a homicide, as we've said, but that does not mean it will be prosecuted as one. We know and you have heard that lawyers for Ontario's Public Service Employees Union were arguing that the death shouldn't be considered a homicide because jail staff did not have the necessary training to handle someone with his illness, with mental illness. They said, quote, there's no evidence of any intention on anyone's part to kill Mr. Fakiri. Given that and what you've heard so far, do you believe that Ontario Provincial Police will reopen the investigation? I personally do not. We do not have faith in the Ontario Provincial Police to uh, to do the right thing. They've already failed us and Ontarians at large. Uh, but there needs to be criminal charges and accountability into Solomon's debt. With respect to the OPSU uh, lawyers, um, there were 60 policy contraventions that happened on the day of Solomon's death. There was 50 bruises on his body. I don't know what more evidence is required to know that this poor man was beaten to death. And you didn't hear that from the Fakiri family, but you heard that from a coroner's inquest. Can you and your family, I guess, live with that or deal with that if there isn't an investigation? We've been living without Solomon for seven years, Neil. Mm -hmm. He's never going to come back. His death has brought a gaping hole. But we take solace in today is that today's inquest, this homicide verdict, has given us a certain level of peace. Not for once, Sully's not coming back. Mm -hmm. But this inquest is a start for transformational change at the correctional system. I want to talk about the 56 recommendations that the the coroner's office uh, proposed to, to jurors to prevent something like this from happening again. But I also wanted to talk with you first about the evidence that came forward that you had to listen to and watch. Um, some of it is available on our CBC News website, including the video of of the moments before your brother died. What was it like for you to see, you know, it gives you answers, yes, about those final moments, but it is difficult to watch. And there are so many officers there throughout throughout that time span. You know, Neil, in the last three weeks, I've fallen into a deep, painful depression. But we as a family, we made a decision to sacrifice our pain so Canadians can see what happened to this man for the facts and the truth to come out. And when I looked at the video of the hallway of his final moments of my late brother's life, it didn't need to end like that. As you know, Mr. Moss, one of the guards that treated Solomon with respect and dignity, he was able to walk him and his team in the shower with, with no problems at all. And so for me, it was so difficult to see that. But at the same time, it was important for Ontarians and Canadians to see that this poor man, what he went through, and that this is a correctional system the way it exists right now. And even though we went through this, people need to see the facts, and the facts have now been spoken, and the truth has come out. Are, do you have support? Are you? How are you taking care of yourself? You know, it's very difficult. I, I have my mother and my wonderful family, and that's been, you know, that's been with us, and uh, Canadians across the country, and loved ones supporting me. But Neil, what this family went through, uh, I wish it on nobody. And my, what my late brother went through, no one should go through, especially when he was in an acute psychotic uh, mental health crisis. And uh, I, I hope that Psalm's tragic end could be a start for us to have transformational change in the system. Even before the recommendations, the 56 recommendations, have you heard anything or seen anything that that leads you to believe things have changed from seven years ago, that now if someone is, is in distress, as your brother was, that they would be handled differently? This is the unfortunate part that we heard from witnesses that nothing has really changed. They've continued to operate in the same way, correction, since Solomon's tragic death. 
So no corrections has not changed, but but it, the, the time is now for Premier Ford to and put all of these recommendations forward because these recommendations are based on life and death. People with mental illness should not even be in these institutions, but corrections need to have an external accountability so a tragedy such as this never takes place again. And your brother was waiting for a medical assessment, isn't that right? Absolutely, and he was also calling for his mother. Uh, we try to see him four times, and I often think about when Sally was calling for my precious mother, how, how things would have been very different. So... Um, I want people to know that, that today was the first time that this young man was hurt and he was seen, Solomon Fikiri, for the last seven years. He was not hurt or he wasn't seen. I'm so sorry, Yusuf. Of the recommendations that have been proposed, which one stood out to you that you think could, could make the kind of change that is necessary? Absolutely. Corrections operates in an opaque way without transparency and accountability. And one of the recommendations was that it was the inspectorate, this provincial agency that is independent from the Ministry of the Solicitor General that oversees corrections that can have accountability mechanisms, Neil. And I think this is where the start is. And this is where this agency can have monumental transformative change because right now corrections isn't capable of changing itself. So this office could do a could do a profoundly important work in terms of getting data and also making sure that there's accountability when the tragedy mm-hmm. such as this happened. And the Ford government, and we will be following very closely what the Ford government does with these recommendations, specifically this one. And I think this is a moment of reckoning for all of us Canadians when we're looking at the correctional system and Canadians suffering from mental illness. That's my hope one day, Neil. Has, has the province reached out to you in any way during this process? Or I know the news has just come out today. The decision has just come out today. But have you heard anything yet? No, we have we have not heard anything back. We've never even received the condolences from the province of Ontario. You told me before uh, about your brother's gifted mind, and he was an intellectual. What else do you want our listeners to know and remember about him? Suleiman was my mom's son. He was a beautiful soul, a wise man, a prankster who loved to joke around with his kids who forced his family to look at beyond his mental illness, who changed us and made us better people today. And we are on this earth today because of Solomon's illness made us better people. And uh, when I look at his beautiful life, um, uh, and I, I see my beautiful brother who is 18 months younger than me, but I see that smile where I used to kiss his forehead and to say to him, bro, I miss you, but I tried my best and that we love you. Yusuf, I appreciate your time again, and I, I do hope, you have someone to talk to and help you as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, Neil. Yusuf Fakiri is the older brother of Suleiman Fakiri, who was killed in an Ontario jail cell seven years ago this week. For the first time today, a jury deemed his death a homicide. We reached Mr. Fakiri in Toronto. Alexei Navalny is missing. The Russian opposition leader is currently serving a 30-year sentence on, quote, extremism charges, which he calls politically motivated. He was due to be transferred to one of Russia's most severe penal colonies. But now Mr. Navalny's team says they haven't heard from him in a week. His disappearance comes shortly after Vladimir Putin announced he'd be running for re-election, setting him up to be the longest-serving president in Russian history. Leonid Volkov is Alexei Navalny's chief of staff, and we reached him in Vilnius, Lithuania. 
Leonid, do you think it's a coincidence that Alexei Navalny has gone missing just after Vladimir Putin announced he was running for president again? Uh, of course, it's not coincidence. Uh, whatever happens to Alexei Navalny is defined by Mr. Putin personally. Uh, we have seen many proofs for this, uh, including Navalny's attempted poisoning in 2020, uh, unlawful decisions, uh, his imprisonment, etc. It was always orchestrated from Kremlin. And it it proves that Putin still considers Navalny to be his well, main rival, and he wants to make sure Navalny is silent during the so-called presidential campaign, which is, well, it's it's a mock election. It's not a real campaign, not a real election, and still Kremlin worries a lot about like what Navalny could mm-hmm. save, what Navalny could call for, etc., He's already in prison. His health hasn't been hasn't been very good uh, in the months leading up to this point. So, what it, would Putin be worried about? What could Alexei Navalny do? Uh, Navalny has millions of supporters all across Russia, and he is the leader of the Russian opposition. And Putin's um, Putin's position uh, on the eve of the election is not very strong. I mean, he has full control over the electoral system. Uh, We already know the outcome of the so-called election. But people also expect that Putin will talk to them, that Putin will campaign, that Putin will kind of like make promises, Mm -hmm. answer the questions people want to know answers for. And in this regard, uh, it suddenly looks like Putin is very weak because according to the polls people want to know like when will the war end how the government wants to deal with enormous poverty uh, in the country etc and Putin doesn't have any answers for these questions and Navalny is talking only about this all his statements from the courtrooms from in his letters from prison there was a statement about that the war has to be stopped immediately that Russian troops have to leave Ukraine, and that instead Russian government has to start fighting against enormous poverty uh, in the country. This is a message that during the political campaign, during the even even during this, even this mock campaign, will come through because people will very clearly see that well, Navalny speaks about something that resonates with them, while Putin doesn't isn't able to provide answers for their questions, and this might be. Quite dangerous for him. Where do you think Alexei Navalny is? It looks like, I mean, most likely he's being transferred uh, to another prison. Uh, I mean, that's that's what we hope for. Uh, he's being transferred to a top security penal colony. Uh, but actually, we can only guess. We don't know anything about his whereabouts. He could be anywhere in that huge country all across its 11 time zones. And unfortunately, and that's a scary thing, there is no way for us to find out until uh, he arrives somewhere and he's allowed to get in touch with his lawyers again. In the meantime, uh, as you try to get answers, we mentioned his health has not been, he's not been well. How do you think he's doing right now? What was he dealing with before? Well, we don't know. Russian prison system is not a place where you want to to get sick because there is just no health care uh, in place. Every disease 
becomes a life-threatening disease. Like, I mean, imagine getting, like, a flu. In Russian prison, you might be sure that no one will care, no one will diagnose it, no one, no one will treat it, and this complication might, might become lethal, even if the original uh, illness was not very dangerous. And what are these penal colonies like, in, or IK-7, where he might be? <sighs> Mm, well, these are very, very bad places. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Russian penal colony, especially top security penal colony, is a place where members of local administration are stars and gods. Uh, they define the rules. There are no restrictions for them. Uh, they can do whatever they want, and they know they will be not punished for whatever they're doing. Um, the food is very bad. The conditions are very bad. And for Navalny, they always create especially bad conditions. They, In his previous places of incarceration, they created like prison inside a prison for him. Uh, really uh, making it impossible for 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 him uh, to communicate with other inmates, uh, to communicate with anyone from the outside. Uh, he didn't have any uh, meeting with his relatives for uh, a year and a half now. Yeah, I mean, probably this will also continue uh, in his new uh, colony. When do you think you'll get an answer and find out if he's safe? I don't know. Uh, we'll, we, we are doing our best to find out about his whereabouts and condition as soon as possible. It might take a couple of weeks, I would say. Leonid, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Leonid Volkov is Alexei Navalny's chief of staff. He was in Vilnius, Lithuania. It is the most wonderful time of the year. Welcome, newcomers. <laughs> the tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. That's right. It's Festivus. According to Frank Costanza, that means it's time to let the last year's pent-up pettiness spill out in a glorious display of grumpiness also known as the annual airing of grievances. Festivus was introduced by Mr. Costanza, played by Jerry Stiller, in a 1997 episode of Seinfeld. And since then, the fictional holiday has taken on a life of its own, including at the Tampa Bay Times. For the past eight years, writer and Festivus expert Christopher Spatta has put a call out to people all over the world to air their grievances. This year's list is out today. We reached Mr. Spatta in Tampa, Florida. Welcome, Christopher. Uh, what's your favorite grievance that you've heard so far this year? <laughs> uh, I think my favorite one I've heard this year is uh, a guy who wrote in to say, when you go to a theme park and you bring a bucket full of meatballs to graze from, like a modern-day feed bag, and your wife throws it away because, quote, you shouldn't eat meat from a bucket. She, she sounds 
like a smart woman, I, I didn't, I mean, I like to have snacks, don't get me wrong with me at all times, but a bucket of meatballs, and you have a picture on your website, sounds like uh, the Costanzas would be on board with that grievance, yeah? You know, we've been debating this, and I think it would be a good snack, like for a baseball game, meatball bucket. Let's yeah. make it happen in 2024. <laughs> we heard Frank's uh, Festivus greeting uh, just a moment ago. There are many other elements to Festivus. Do you have a particular favorite? Well, the airing of grievances is really the most important element yeah. of Festivus. But the other ones are quite uh, interesting, uh, chiefly the Festivus pole, which is an unadorned metal pole, which Frank Costanza says you use instead of a tree because he finds tinsel distracting. Um, there's also something called the Feats of Strength. We never actually see what that is on the episode, so that's up to your imagination mm -hmm. how you want to play out the, the feats of strength. The airing of grievances is, is super important. It's just a cathartic time when you gather your friends and family around, and as he says, you tell them all the ways they've wronged you over the previous year. You do this in writing, but do you do this with your family and friends, too? You know, I get my grievances out because they let me, they let me put one of mine in the newspaper every mm -hmm. year, so I, I get mine out that way. But, you know, this started because I worked at a different newspaper, the Tampa mm -hmm. Tribune. We had a grievance box during the holiday season where people would actually drop their grievances into a box. And during the, uh, the work Christmas party, somebody would stand up and read all the grievances. <laughs> and they were all like, uh, you know, Jim, you've had a rotten apple core on your desk for six months. Oh, God. Uh, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> You know, we would all laugh, but the, the beauty of it was it was a safe space to kind of give people the heads up that you're really annoying me and uh, maybe fix that next year. And it, it worked. Well, I guess, I guess it's a safe space, we could say. People are expecting it, so they're less angry about it when you or did it, did it ever come to blows? People are drinking <laughs> at these office parties. You know, uh, unlike uh, Frank Costanza's version, ours was very peaceful. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think it's a... A good thing. A big part of being a human is enduring sort of life's petty annoyances. Yeah. But you're not supposed to talk about it. You know, people kind of frown on complaining about petty things. So let's make it okay to gripe about some petty stuff one time a year. This stuff adds up, and Festivus is our annual time to get it off our chest. And, you know, it's a good nature way to get things out in the open in a safe space. Everybody needs to vent, for sure. So what is your grievance for the year? Do Do tell. <laughs> well, mine for this year had to do with Spotify's wrapped feature, which <laughs> everyone was sharing last week. You know, they collect data and they tell you kind of what your music preferences say about you. And mine this year told me I was a vampire, which I thought mm. was a cool and unique and edgy. Yeah. And then I went online and I saw that everyone was a vampire. So I'm not cool, unique or edgy at all. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm aggrieved. You're aggrieved. <laughs> some different categories, Spotify. Yes. But let's talk about the ones I was looking at the list. Uh, they're pretty funny, apart from meatballs, as we've discussed. Uh, let's talk about some that are specific to, to this moment in time, this year. Yeah. Um, you know, a big trend this year seems to be Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift's relationship. <laughs> oh, man. Um, some people really don't like seeing them on TV. And let me just be clear. I'm happy for them. Don't get mad at me yes, if you're great. a fan of them. Um, but a lot, a lot of people brought them up. And there's a few that we see every year, no matter what. Um, people who don't put away their shopping carts. Um, people who don't pick up after their dogs. You know what? One that caught my eye is this one about rating everything from Barbara. 
Everyone wants me to rate them after every visit. Rate my recent flight. Rate my dentist. Rate my colonoscopy. What do they want me to say? It was fabulous. Oh, Barbara. Yes, exactly. I mean, you're I, not, she's not wrong. One that I loved was particularly petty, and this is, a guy said, when a server partially unwraps a wrapped straw just to stick it in my drink, thereby <laughs> eliminating the sanitary condition that the restaurant paid extra for by not purchasing unwrapped straws, just bring me the wrapped straw and I can handle the rest. Yes. This is from Kevin Schachter in Palm Harbor, and I, I agree with him. Um, I can share a few of my, my all-time faves Please with you, do. if you'd like. Um, this one comes from a woman in Tampa. When my 12-year-old son calls me, quote, bro, uh, <laughs> last I checked, I was still mom, which is just very funny to me to picture a boy calling his mom, bro. You've been doing this for eight years, as you said. You talked about how how you got the idea, but do you think you will ever tire of it? Absolutely not. You know, like I said, this is part of the human condition is is having these little annoyances pile up every year. We're never going to run out of them. We get hundreds and hundreds each year, far more than we can print. And honestly, I think we should uh, add some pages to the newspaper to fit them all in. Let's make this a worldwide tradition. <laughs> well, Christopher, the, the world has heard you now. We'll see if you've just manifested that that for yourself and your readers. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. Take care and happy Festivus. Happy Festivus. <laughs> Christopher Spata is a features writer at the Tampa Bay Times. He was in Tampa. It all began with a father who would not give up on getting justice for his dead son. David Parfit was frustrated that no one was acting on evidence that someone had sold a poisonous substance to his son Tom. So he went to a British newspaper. Their investigation led police in Ontario to lay multiple charges against Kenneth Law for counseling or aiding suicide. Now, Kenneth Law faces more charges, 14 counts of second-degree murder. The new charges in Ontario are part of an ongoing investigation into allegations Mr. Law sent at least 1,200 packages of poison to people in more than 40 countries. Here is part of what York Regional Police Investigator Simon James had to say earlier today. We continue to cooperate with law enforcement agencies and collaborate with them globally. We ask that the public continue to be cautious and vigilant of their online activities and to be aware of the distribution of sodium nitrite packages as well as masks or hoods that could be used to cause self-harm. David Parfit, the father who started it all, lives in London, England, and that's where we reached him. David, do you think we would be at this point now that Kenneth Law is facing second-degree murder charges had you not pushed for, for answers? I don't think we would be, unfortunately. The real shame for me is that it took so long and it took myself and some amazing journalists to really ensure that the police couldn't ignore what was happening. How does the fact that, that we have these charges now, at least here, how did that hit you to hear that news? It's real mixed emotions for me. Uh, on the one hand, 
I've always seen Kenneth Law as being a murderer, as being the person who murdered my son. And for that to be validated through the good work of Canadian police is uh, in many ways a relief. My uh, overriding emotion, uh, particularly as we're in the holiday season, is, is also one of sadness. It's the time I probably miss my son the most. Mm -hmm. And really what I want to focus on is how we prevent other people falling into this trap. And it, it was really good to hear the police actually highlight this, actually mm -hmm. highlight that people still today need to be vigilant. I want to ask you about that that warning and your warnings and also about your son. But I just wanted to say the legal process, of course, is is still in its early stages. Kenneth Law has been charged but not convicted. CBC News did reach out to his lawyer and that lawyer has declined to comment on these new charges at, at this point. We know here in Ontario that the alleged victims are young people in Ontario between the ages of 16 and 36. We heard police say they're working with, with law enforcement around the world. So do you allow your mind to go a few steps further from that to a point where you might see charges for your son Tom's death? Uh, I do. I look forward to the day that Kenneth Law is charged with my son's murders. And there's 88 other people who were impacted by law, whose deaths are currently being investigated just in the UK. Many, many cases, many, many families with questions. Yes, that that's right. And again, many of the families are, are focused on the changes that need to be made to prevent this happening again. It's unfortunately not the first example. When we hear so, that warning from police, what is your warning to young people who listen to our program, parents as well? If uh, people are feeling vulnerable, then please ensure that you get professional help. Please ensure that you talk to your loved ones. Please ensure that you do everything you can to avoid falling into what my son did, which was, I think, best described as a, as a cult, as a group of people who online seem to enjoy preying on vulnerable people and enjoy encouraging them to self-harm and in many cases to uh, unfortunately take their own lives. In, in addition to here in Canada and, and the UK, Police in the United States, New Zealand, France, Ireland, Italy, Germany, and Switzerland are all looking into packages shipped by Kenneth Law. The scale and the scope of this, how do you process that? What, what does that tell you about young people around the world and what's going on? I think the scale of what Law has done is actually only a small part of the total problem that there are many other laws we are as a society allowing internet forums to do things that we wouldn't allow in real life you wouldn't allow a shop in a mall to peddle suicide kits or to provide advice on how to kill yourself and yet we allow that online 
I want to ask you about Tom. As I said, he was 22 years old when he died uh, two years ago. What do you What do you want to share about him with us and our listeners? Tom was a a, a lovely man. He uh, he was somebody who was always smiling and and laughing. He was a highly intelligent kid as well. He um, was studying at uh, St Andrews University in in Scotland. Incredibly intelligent young man. But clearly he had his challenges. He had poor mental health and he um, he was really struggling to, to get through that. And um, I, I believe that if it wasn't for Kenneth Law, he'd still be here today. And that's that's what keeps me awake at night. I'm sorry for your loss, David. Thank you. I spoke to, to another young man today who lost his brother in uh, very difficult circumstances. And I asked, I'll ask you what I asked him, and, and that is whether you have someone to talk to or support you need, because, you know, when family members take up these kinds of fights, it can certainly take a toll on top of the grief you're already dealing with. I, I appreciate you asking that question, and, and I guess I know how difficult it is for people to listen to interviews like this, because it, uh, the end of the day, I've um, I've lost a son. I've lost him to to suicide, and it's obviously incredibly hard to to talk about him. But yeah, on on the other side, talking about him and being able to use his name to campaign, and I really hope to save other people from going through this is is the most important thing. We we will save lives, and and those lives then save many other people from the really traumatic impact that losing someone, especially so young, has. David, thank you for your time. Thank you, Neil. That was David Parfit, the father of Tom Parfit. He was in London. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can call or text Canada's newly established National Crisis Hotline at 988. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. One grave on a Spanish island gives a date with the words migrant boat number four. In northern France, a slab reads Monsieur X. These are the burial places of people believed to be migrants who died at the borders of Europe, and they were buried before they were named. The Guardian newspaper described these scenes in a recent article, and Daphne Tolis is a part of the investigative team behind it. She's a freelance journalist in Greece, we reached her in Athens. 
Daphne, how many cases, how many unidentified people are buried in Europe, according to to the work you and the team did? So um, our cross-border team, we are um, a team of eight journalists. We are from various countries, uh, European countries, Spain, Italy, Greece, Poland, Lithuania, France, Croatia. We found 1,015 unmarked graves of migrants in 65 cemeteries across these countries. We focused on the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Do you know anything more about those people that you found um, and that you've tallied about what they went through before they died and how they died? This is a series of uh, different factors that play a role, of course. Uh, People cross, you know, taking boats, flimsy boats, overcrowded boats crossing from uh, Turkey to Greece, for example, or they cross the land border again from Turkey to Greece. They might have left from Afghanistan, they might have left Syria, they might have left from Eritrea. We spoke to uh, families and people from all different countries that are seeking safety, they're seeking a better life, they're fleeing war, they're fleeing persecution. So some of these people start from one country and then end up in another country many months later. But in the meantime, not everyone makes it alive because of these deadly journeys as uh, They have been described over and over because they are indeed deadly. When we talk about the graves themselves, there are no names, but there are some markings on on most of them. Can you describe for our listeners what the graves do say? Um, Okay, so for example, on the island of Lesbos, where I've been more than 100 times, and I've seen uh, this cemetery that was actually created for refugees and migrants, both identified and unidentified. I've seen stones, um, tombstones, where it's written, unidentified girl, two years old, unidentified boy, two years old. This is, of course, is an estimate, as the coroner says, because they can estimate through their autopsy, the age. They would always uh, extract DNA and keep this sample, as they told us. Uh, So if at some point there is a contributing sample uh, of a first degree relative, then this Mm -hmm. can actually help uh, to identify. And then this family member who is who doesn't know where where their loved one is will actually get the closure that uh, they much Mm -hmm. need. So you see maybe rocks surrounding some part of of land, like some grave. You see a cross, uh, a wooden cross or a wooden piece with some marking maybe some cloth. I've seen also uh, candy, candy laid down next to someone who was identified. Possibly later, there can also be identifications at a later stage. So those family members are able to to come because family members are able to come either because they're in Europe or they can send DNA. But the problem is that many times they cannot send the DNA because they don't know where to to send it. They don't know where to start looking. What is the responsibility of European Union countries? to try to name these people, these victims? Well, two years ago, the European Parliament, they passed a a resolution that then recognizing the need for a coordinated European approach, as they called it, and an effective identification process for bodies found on the borders of the European Union. Of course, up to this date, and it's uh, for various reasons, and one of them being um, GDPR, is that there's no centralized European database on migrant disappearances. That would perhaps facilitate coordinations on all the phases of the search process. But each country follows uh, its own, of course, 
protocols and most protocols in the in in Europe are which are followed are the ones that you know Interpol uh, has implemented in order to have like a centralized approach in terms of who keeps the DNA this has to be the state authorities um, what happens to these samples for security reasons also but also for GDPR reasons and um, that's data protection regulations exactly data protection regulations but again this still doesn't mean that there's no problem when it comes to the actual uh, procedure not being able to be implemented for various reasons like the dna sample is not uh, able to arrive the people don't know where to start where to look where to begin to look your work and the team's work is to illustrate the scale and the magnitude of the problem what ultimately do you hope your story does? What do you hope it changes? Definitely, um, I think awareness and people think that this is over now. No, it's not over. It's still happening. It's not in the news, but it doesn't mean that it isn't happening. It's still happening. Uh, People will still cross. People do cross. People do die. Uh, And that there's no existence of safe and legal routes means that those same people that can't find a safe route they will resort to people smugglers. They will resort to taking routes that have proven deadly over these years, these eight, nine, ten years. They will go on those boats that are flimsy, on those boats that are overcrowded, and any other means that actually make these journeys the deadly journeys, as we call them. And the story doesn't end after we hear that report of, of the ship capsizing or the boat capsizing. There is an aftermath, as you've illustrated. Yes, exactly. So there is an aftermath. There are people arriving, yes, and there are people that uh, will never arrive. There are people that will never be found. There are people that are still missing. Many people are still missing. There should be um, a better cooperation between all countries, and this will raise awareness. This will help find you know people that are still missing perhaps they will help Uh, but of course as long as these safe and legal routes do not exist we will still keep seeing um, unjust deaths at the borders Daphne I appreciate your time thank you thank you so much Daphne Tolis is a freelance journalist in Athens that's where we reached her Today, the federal government announced the latest step in its blueprint for tackling the housing crisis, and it involves, well, blueprints. Starting next month, Canada will begin consultations on a new housing design catalog initiative. And if that sounds pretty abstract for a very concrete problem, it's at least rooted in something with a track record. A decades-old Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation effort aimed at addressing post-war housing shortages. Mike Moffat is the Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute at the University of Ottawa and presented the initiative to the federal government this summer. We reached him in Ottawa. 
Mike, how will this catalog get more homes built and, and get them built faster? Well, we need to look at all the bottlenecks that are preventing us from from building more homes. Uh, one of the largest is approval processes, and those could be uh, anything from municipal processes to those at the CMHC. By having a catalog of pre-approved designs, we can fast track through the approvals process that, uh, you know, whether it be uh, municipal officials or the CMHC, um, are able to look at these designs that they've already been approved, uh, they're familiar with them, it can help uh, move these through the process. So I think this helps address many of the barriers, not all of them, but many of the barriers uh, preventing us from, from building more housing. And how, how is this plan different from other you know, prefab home programs that we know about or, or other housing blueprints that are out there? Well, this would be substantially different than uh, the policy in the 1940s just because of the the types of designs uh, that could go into it. So one example is that we're seeing across Canada the legalization of fourplexes, you know, four units to any lot. There's not a lot of designs right now out there for that, and particularly small-scale builders and developers don't really have much experience with that. If we could incorporate some of those into this catalog, um, that would save a lot of, of time and expense where a new builder wouldn't have to go to an architect to design something new. They could take this off-the-shelf design and start building it uh, building it right away. So it, it will certainly help us get all kinds of new housing forms. This wouldn't simply be the single detached, uh, you know, 900 square foot uh, kind of strawberry box designs mm -hmm. that uh, we saw in the late 1940s. You've said in response to this announcement that you know you're you're pleased with it, but it needs to be well executed, as you as you put it. So, what are your concerns about that execution? Well, first of all, we need to move relatively quickly. That absolutely, we need to have stakeholder consultations and and think through the designs. But we are in a crisis, so we need to move quickly. And then, secondly, that the the design, the actual designs themselves, are important. That we need to make sure that these homes, again, are easy to put together, don't require a, a massive amount of skilled labor. Uh, we need to make sure that they're, they're energy efficient and ideally, um, you know, very, very low carbon, but at the same time, make sure that they're, they're affordable. So, you know, that is a bit of a, a challenge, you know, accomplishing all of these things. So, you know, there will be some difficulties getting this right, but I, I'm, I'm confident that, that if the government, uh, you know, listens to builders and developers and the social housing community that we could do something very transformative here. I wanted to ask you about aff affordability because supply could help in, on that front, obviously, but land is expensive in a lot of the, the cities across this country where housing is, is at the crisis point, right? So, so will this actually help in terms of aff affordability? Yeah, it absolutely can. You know, will it cause land prices to go down? Probably not, but it, it can help us with the more efficient use of land. Again, things like like fourplexes mm -hmm. and you know six story apartment buildings and 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 things like that. So even if we're not driving down the you know square meter cost of, of a piece of land, if we can more efficiently use that land, that would certainly help. And as well, we could also uh, reduce the construction costs, which you know might be smaller than the land cost, but they're, they're still pretty significant. Consultations are, are set to start in the new year. How soon do you think we could, we could see some of these homes built and ready for people to move in? 
Well, it certainly takes some some time to actually build the homes, but I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that we can have some of these designs ready uh, in in 2024 and, and available to builders and developers. And I think it is going to be important to get the first set of designs out relatively quickly. I know there will be, um, you know, a, a feeling in government that you know you need to come out with a very comprehensive catalog of of hundreds of designs at the beginning. But I think that would be the wrong approach. I, I think we need to be iterative here. Get the first set of designs out, build some momentum, and then keep adding to it year after year. You mentioned the fourplexes. Right now, this is aimed at at low rise construction and, and could expand as as we've said from there. But what's your feeling on why they wouldn't start with higher density housing right out of the gate, mid rise buildings? Yeah, I I, th- I think it's uh, you know designed again to sort of build that momentum. So I think they are going for the easiest low hanging fruit. Though I I'm hopeful that when they when they talk about uh, you know low rise that they are talking about fourplexes and and, and things like that. But I, I certainly think we are going to need to to build on this. We know that there's a big lack of uh, housing for students, like dorm spaces and things like that. Love to see some designs in there that colleges and universities can take and, and create uh, more student housing. So, you know, I, I think they're making the sensible decision to to start with the, the easiest parts first. But the, to, for this to be a success, they're going to have to expand on it and, and create uh, middle and higher density uh, type designs. How many homes do you think we'll see? Yeah, it's tough to know. Uh, you know, the CMHC says that we need an additional 3.5 million homes. You know, by itself, this is probably not going to 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 get us there. There are so many barriers. Do you think thousands? Yeah, no, I, I'd I'd be thinking if they get it right, I'm thinking hundreds of thousands. This is not going to get more homes built tomorrow. Nothing is. Um, but there's but there's no time like the present. And this should be part of a, a suite of initiatives that the government's put out, like removing the HST on on uh, purpose-built rentals, like the housing accelerator and, and so on. Um, there's a lot more work to be, to be done here, but I think this is um, an, an important piece of the puzzle. Thanks for this, Mike. No, thank you for having me. Mike Moffat is founding director of Place Center at the Smart Prosperity Institute. He was in Ottawa. A quick update for you now. Last night, Neil spoke to Harvard Jewish Studies professor Derek Pensler. He's one of the organizers behind a letter of support from the faculty for Harvard President Claudine Gay. About 700 of his colleagues endorsed it, following a call for her resignation from 73 members of the U.S. Congress. They called for her removal after her appearance at a congressional hearing, where she and other Ivy League leaders all failed to give yes-or-no answers to questions about school policies about students calling for the genocide of Jews. President Gay later apologized for her answers, and last night, after our interview, Harvard's board voted unanimously to reaffirm its support for Gay, saying she was, quote, the right leader to help our community heal and to address the very serious societal issues we're facing. Representative Elise Stefanik, who questioned the university leaders at the congressional hearing last week, issued a statement calling the decision, quote, a moral failure of Harvard's leadership and higher education leadership at the highest levels, unquote.
as a psychiatrist and an advocate, Dr. John A. Talbot pushed to deinstitutionalize mental illness in the United States. And then after it happened, he became one of the movement's biggest critics. Dr. Talbot died late last month. He was 88. Over some 60 years, Dr. Talbot built a career advocating for individuals experiencing homelessness and mental illness. In posts at universities, mental hospitals, and prominent journals, Dr. Talbot pushed for a model of community care, one that failed to thrive after the mass closures of American mental hospitals. Dr. Alan Francis was a friend and former colleague of Dr. Talbot. We reached him in Carmel, California. Dr. Francis, when you first met John Talbot as a resident, what struck you about him? Well, John was the sort of person who lit up every room. He had tremendous energy. He was a lively, uh, interested, caring, um, never gave up optimistic kind of person who um, really cared about people and understood them. He was a pioneer in many ways, a champion of this idea of community psychiatry at a time where that was not prevalent. Uh, People with mental illnesses were institutionalized and very different institutions than even the ones we know today. What was his dream or his his ideal for how people dealing with mental illness should be cared for? When we began work, people with severe mental illness were housed in horrible dungeon-like snake pit mental hospitals and with very few doctors to care for them. John was uh, began his psychiatric career just as deinstitutionalization was becoming a popular theme. And he was one of the leaders in encouraging deinstitutionalization, that people could live in the community with dignity as citizens rather than being stuck away in these horrible hospitals. Uh, John then quickly became discouraged about the way deinstitutionalization was being done. The patients were just dumped in the community without any uh, assistance, social services, uh, psychiatric care. And luckily, a community psychiatry bill was passed by the Kennedy administration in 1963, and John was one of the leaders Mm -hmm. in helping to understand how we could best treat people in the community with medication, with a place to live. And uh, the tragedy was that starting with President Reagan in 1980, the funding for these programs was killed. The states had saved a fortune in closing their state hospitals, which usually were the most expensive Mm -hmm. item in their budget, but they didn't spend the money on the community care. And John spent the rest of his career fighting against us. You wrote, quote, few people have ever had so distinguished a career as Dr. Talbot, but Perhaps none has ever had a more frustrating and disappointing one, end quote. What did he tell you about that disappointment? Well, John never gave up. As the funding died in the United States, luckily for people in other countries, governments began to realize that it was a much better model to take care of the patients in the community than to to stick them in these expensive and horrible hospitals. And John had a very successful career internationally in promoting community psychiatry. But sadly, tragically, horribly, uh, he, I, and other people interested in this watched as the patients who previously were in these horrible hospitals became homeless and imprisoned. There are now about 600,000 psychiatric patients who are either uh, in jail or living on the streets. And ironically, the situation has become so bad now that the public is taking notice Mm -hmm. that there is actually increased funding for community programs, largely pushed by the fact that there are so many homeless people living 
in so many different cities under horrible conditions. And people are beginning to realize when once they're living on their street corner that this is intolerable. The prisons are terribly overcrowded with perhaps a, a, a fifth to a third of prisoners being mentally ill people who really need treatment in the community not to be in jails. And I think that the prison associations, the sheriffs have become more and more aware of the need and advocate strongly in the direction that John did. Our listeners have just heard earlier in, in tonight's program two conversations I had with, with people who've lost loved ones, and and mental illness was is certainly at the heart of their stories. But the inability of officials or institutions to deal effectively and properly with people who are who are struggling with mental illness is at the heart of those stories as well. So when you when you did speak to him last, how was he reflecting on things? Well, I think that John was not the sort of person to ever accept a um, a defeat. And I think he saw the situation in America realistically, but optimistically. And I think that he felt, as, as I do, that things are so bad now. I, I, there's no, the way I put it, there's no place in the world where it's worse to be a, a severely mentally ill person than the United States. It's a disgrace. And other countries have done so much better than we have. I think John felt that the pendulum was swinging back towards the realization, if not for the goodness of, of society, for the necessity, because people are no longer willing to tolerate having hopeless people on their street and not house all the mentally ill in the prisons. So I think he was optimistic that the message which had been ignored uh, for all the wrong reasons during these last 40 years was suddenly now being heard. And I think all of us have an obligation to carry on his work. It's interesting that you say that because when you brought up the the example of homelessness earlier in the conversation as well, it struck me that it's because it's become a nuisance to people that that others are living in their neighborhoods or there are encampments rather than necessarily concern that that people need help. That's a sad thing. It used to be considered a public responsibility to take care of our most disadvantaged people, the people with the most severe mental illness. And now there's a complete non-system. No one's responsible. There's not nearly enough money. And in the vacuum, prisons and the street have become the default position. And I, I guess it's only when you hit bottom, and we as a country in so many ways have hit bottom, that you can begin to look upward and hope that things will get better. Could you share a bit of the, the last things you, you spoke about when you were able to speak to your friend? Yeah, no, we were talking about this to the very end. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he worked. He was editing his journal, having terrific arthritis, pounding with one finger. He worked on his journal until a week before he died. It sounds like a remarkable person. Yep. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, Dr. Francis, but... Well, he was my friend for 55 years. And he was my boss for 15 years. And um, he was a person I admired and tried to model myself on throughout my career. Thank you, Dr. Francis. Thank you. Dr. Alan Francis, who is in Carmel, California, was a friend and former colleague of Dr. John A. Talbot. The psychiatrist and champion of community psychiatry died last month. He was 88.
An American astronaut stands vindicated today after months of accusations floating around the International Space Station. Francisco Frank Rubio spent a record 371 days aboard the space station, an accomplishment to be sure, but one that was overshadowed by a tomato. A tomato that Lieutenant Colonel Rubio had cultivated as part of a salad-growing experiment. A tomato that he swore had simply been misplaced when it suddenly disappeared. A tomato that his fellow ISS inhabitants, on the other hand, saw as a red flag. Before long, the Lieutenant Colonel found himself on the receiving end of sharp comments from hangry colleagues who'd had nothing but rehydrated pouch food for months. Things like maybe, oh sure, you lost it. What, did it just float away? To which he likely said, yes, exactly. But they were having none of it because they assumed he'd had all of it. Lieutenant Colonel Rubio says he spent nearly 20 hours searching for the lost cherry tomato, efforts that were fruitless, leaving the astronaut fearing he'd be branded a tomato thief forever. Then, finally, this week, eight months after the original incident, a message from outer space. Current residents of the ISS had located the tomato, or what was left of it, and in doing so, had saved Lieutenant Colonel Rubio's reputation, or what was left of it. And at long last, everyone involved in this whole sordid affair can finally stop seeing red. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following The World at Six. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Stephanie Skanderis. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.